0: As you know, I played, I played football in New Mexico and there was this guy on our team. I'm not going to mention his name in the event that he's watching our live stream. That's highly unlikely. Unli- I, mean, I won't mention his names, but his initials were Huey Chancellor. and uh Huey Chancellor was from Odessa, Texas. He played at Permian High School. Now, if you know anything about Texas football, well, for a while, their Permian High School was it. I mean, they were... They still think they are, yeah. Huey Chancellor was, but 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 Huey Chancellor uh, was one of these guys who just loved to fight. I don't know, ladies, you probably don't know anybody like that, but us guys, you know, like to. I call him like to fight guy. You know, you look at him wrong, and it's go time. You know, he just and Huey Chancellor was one of these guys that just loved to fight. Uh I remember one time uh it was it was a Friday afternoon. I said, Huey, what do you got going on tonight? He said. Expected to leave. I'm going out, pick a fight. I'm gonna go pick a fight. That's that was his, that was his orientation. I'm gonna go pick a fight. He just loved to fight, and he was a good fighter, by the way. He was, he was a tough dude. Um, he really could, Sam. He really could probably beat me. But you, I don't know. Uh, no one likes pick a fight guy. You just don't like to be around people who who, who like to fight um and and i 'd be curious to know if uh, what would you say uh, is your general impression of jesus what was he like during his earthly ministry? I would be curious to know what would be the first thing to come well how would you what would be your impression what, how would you describe in Jesus from your thinking uh, uh, of what he was like in his earthly ministry? It probably would not be he was a Pick a fight guy. Not, certainly not in the sense of Huey Chancellor anyway. A a common impression of Jesus is that Jesus was, uh, just kind of, and I've said this before obviously, but he was just kind of this Mahatma Gandhi kind of guy that, you know, kind of, you know, roamed the countryside and, uh, you know, would say really wise sayings and, uh, but for the most part, you know, he 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 tried to stay away from trouble. He tried to stay under the radar of Rome, and he 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 wanted to stay out of the crosshairs of uh, of the religious leaders of his day, and he just wanted to be left alone, and you know, teach his disciples, and uh, you know, not confront anybody, not not ruffle any feathers, um, have everybody like him. we're going to get a very different picture of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Um, That is a mere caricature of our Savior. And not just in the Gospel of Mark, but if you were to read when when he overturned the tables in the temple. Um, When he called Herod a fox. Um, Years ago... Uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew and so I guess in a sense uh, this morning I'm I'm going to try to challenge you maybe to, 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 to see Jesus maybe as you've never seen him before the title you can see is Jesus Picks a Fight in fact five times Mark records Jesus picking a fight you know it's Not from a petty standpoint. It wasn't from I'm going to prove I'm right. But he was very purposeful. And I'm going to challenge us to see Jesus this way and and see him in his ministry. That Jesus, in fact, went out of his way to confront the religious leaders of his day. He was constantly picking fights. And it begins in Mark chapter 2. And he'll give us five vignettes, five snapshots of when Jesus picked a fight. Mark chapter two, beginning in verse one, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together, said there's no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay If you've ever heard a sermon on Mark chapter 2, most of the time, and it's legitimate, most of the time it's focused on Jesus healing this man. And and they'll they'll go into great lengths about describing the roofs of of early Palestine and how it would have been easy to to, to dig a hole and drop this man down and they would have emphasized his faith. And and all those things are true. But but, but I want us to to take the diamond, if you will, and and turn it and look at this story from a, a little bit different perspective. Verse 1 says, He returned to Capernaum, and it was reported that He was home, and, and so, obviously He's at the peak of His popularity at this point, and, and this crowd is surrounding this house. It's, you know, they're inside, they're packed, they're standing outside the door, and look with, look who else is there. Verse chapter 6, or chapter 6, verse 6a. Six now some of the scribes were sitting there. Man, that is really important. That's really important statement for this, I think, for this, this whole text. The scribes were sitting there. And Jesus knew they were there. And what's the scenario? The scenario is these four men, um, they arrive with their, their friend, presumably their friend, maybe a brother. And they couldn't get to see Jesus, so they dig a hole and they lower this guy through the ceiling. Uh, right in front of Jesus or right near Jesus. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. What would you expect him to say? What? Well, let me ask you this. Presumably, what did they why did they bring this man to Jesus? For healing. I would have expected Jesus to say, "Son, you're you're healed." Like we've seen many, many times. We'll see many, many times. Lay his hands on him or just, son, your sins are healed. But he says what? Your sins are forgiven. Now, why would he say that? I I, I would like to uh, suggest the reason he said that is because the scribes were sitting right there and he wanted to pick a fight. What were his options at that point? When they lowered this man down, for instance, if he fact. Wanted to to heal or to save this man. What were his options? He could have said, "Okay, tell you what, um, come back after sunset, and and we'll we'll get it taken care of." Um, or he could have said, "What? What? What are some of his other options? Not today, tomorrow, but instead, Jesus chooses at that, that moment not to say you're you're healed, but to say your sins are forgiven." And I would suggest to you he's picking a fight with these scribes, because what does it, what does the Mark tell us about the scribes? Verse uh, seven. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. This is what they're thinking. They're not saying that they're thinking this. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now it's interesting that the. The the Jews believed that even the Messiah, who whenever he came, they believed that even the Messiah would not have the authority to forgive sins, but that it would be be God alone. God alone had the authority to forgive sins because nothing about the Messiah in the Old Testament gave any indication that forgiving sins was something that that he was going to have the ability to do or the authority to do. So obviously they saw this very much as an act of blasphemy. How dare he? Say, uh, forgive his sins. Only God can forgive sins. Were they right? Yes. They were absolutely right. Only God can, has the authority to forgive sins. But what were they missing? He was God, and that's why he's picking a fight. So what does Jesus say to them? See, uh, that's why I submit to you, this this healing was a means to an end. Obviously, he had compassion on this man, and he wanted to heal him and forgive him of his sins. But this, to me, was just a, a, a means to an end that Jesus wanted to confront these scribes. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were, they were questioning this themselves. They weren't just questioning, but they were accusing him of hey, this man as a blasphemer. And immediately Jesus said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And let, let me just stop for a moment. I think that that's what maybe Jesus say to us sometimes. Why do you question these things in your hearts? So, see the enemy oftentimes will get us to question things. Did you did 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 God really say that? Did he really mean that? Um, I think that's a that's a a caution for us. Why do you, why do you question these things in your hearts? That there certainly is a place to question our faith. There's certainly a place to, that it is a reasonable faith and, and, it, and it is a, it, it, it comports with all that we know about reality. But be cautious. As Jesus would say, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then Jesus gives them a question. And he puts them in a real bind. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? So I'm going to ask you the question. Which would easier would it be? Which one is easier? Who says it'd be easier to, to say your sins are forgiven? Oh, we're, okay, we're split here. Who would say it's easier to say, get up, take your pallet, and walk? Okay. Yeah, the what, 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 did, what bind did this question give to them? What if they were to say, which is easier, what does he say, easier or harder? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk and go home? What if they were to say, it's easier to say, take up your mat and go home? What What would be the problem with that? yeah that's 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 either verifiable or unverifiable if you're to say uh, uh a man who had never walked say rise up and walk it's going to be obvious whether he can whether he can or he can't whether he did or he didn't so the the, the answer is well it'd be easier to say to say your sins are forgiven why because it's that is unverifiable, how are you going to verify that so it's easy to say that, so he gives him what 's called a lesser to greater argument, and look what he says in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive since he 's picking a fight. It would have been very easy for him just to put this thing off until after sunset or the next day. Uh, he gives him this this uh, this picks a fight with them, which is easier to say, but that you may know that the Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic, "I say to you, rise, pick up your bed it would have been a mat and go home and what happens <laughs> he stands up, picks up his mat and goes home in front of all of them. Now, you're you're a scribe. You're a Pharisee sitting there. What impact did this have on them? Don't you think that every head in that house turned to look at those Pharisees as this man walked out the house? Jesus picked a fight with them over the healing of this man. Uh, Not not only a healing, but more importantly, saving this sinner's life. Fight number one. Fight number two. Verse thirteen. He went out again beside the sea. This was not now. These are 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 most likely not not immediately chronological. These are these are events that, because of how Mark phrases them, were events that probably occurred at various times throughout Jesus' ministry. But he Mark is lumping them together for a reason. If you remember last week, we had five vignettes of his popularity, his growing popularity. Now we have five vignettes of him, what I call picking fights. the the height of his popularity, he starts picking fights with people, with certain kinds of people. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea. was some time later and all the crowd was coming to him. They're still very popular. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, where would you have expected to see this account, this calling of Levi? Last week, when he called Peter, James, John, and in all likelihood, he probably did. Now, if you remember last Sunday, we talked about the fact this would not have been the first time that Matthew had encountered Jesus. Jesus didn't walk by his tax booth and he Hey, follow me. Okay. No, he, It had probably been a good year or so. Turn, keep your marker here and turn to Luke chapter 5. Because remember, Mark is so succinct in how he describes things. He's he's moving along at at a rapid pace and he doesn't give us as much details, as many details as Matthew and Luke do. Luke chapter 5. Verse 27. Luke's account of the calling of Levi. Uh, Levi being his given name, Matthew, probably a nickname of a sort. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That's the same kind of phrase that we heard, or the the response that we saw from Peter and and, and Andrew and from James and John. They, They left everything and followed him. Now, this is what makes Levi, though, even more... Uh, uh, impressive than than the four fishermen. What happens if this Jesus thing really doesn't work out? They can go back to fishing, no problem. Not Levi. Levi was a tax collector, and you've you probably all heard this before. But tax collectors were basically hired by Rome, and and uh, they would have all different kinds of tax. Most believe Levi was uh, was in, was a toll tax. This was a booth along a road. And so he would collect toll tax, and Rome would say, uh, we expect, uh, 10% of whatever, you know, travels past you. That's all they had to pay to Rome. Well then they, they, they could charge any percentage above that and put it in their pocket. So typically, they were very wealthy people. Um, but it came at a high cost, because they were hated, you can imagine. They were hated. They were the local IRS agent that was corrupt, and said, you know, uh, you owe, uh, you owe a thousand dollars, you really owe five hundred. But we're gonna say you owe a thousand, we're gonna pay five hundred to Rome, put five hundred in my pocket. And this is who he calls. Is, is this tax collector. And, and, and having demonstrated his authority to forgive sin, Mark now follows up with an even, maybe even a more amazing count, that of all the people he called to follow him, was this tax collector. This was a notable sinner. Mark chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Jesus picks another fight. As he reclined a table in his house, Matthew's house, Levi's house, many, many tax collectors and sinners. Now the NIV, I think the NIV still does this, but they have sinners in quotation marks, and that is appropriate. Quote unquote, sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, he's at this party. I don't want to say party because that, that may be... They're at a dinner. And, and dinner in that culture was a sign of, of intimate friendship and fellowship. Um. They would often, little known fact, they they would often sit and eat, uh, but they would only recline when it was uh, an intimate setting. So this is an intimate setting. But who's there again? The scribes, the Pharisees are there again, and Jesus knows it. And they say this time, they don't say anything to Jesus, what do they do? They say to his disciples, psst, hey, Uh, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? What is implied in that statement? Did they, was this a, was this a question of information? Were they saying, I'm curious, why is he doing this? This is a kind of a passive-aggressive thing, right? What, what's implied in that statement? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, exactly. No self-respecting rabbi would would consort with these kinds of people, with these tax collectors, with these sinners. This was a very common outlook of the Pharisees. Again, turn uh, invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke's account or Luke's gospel. Luke 18 Verse 9, we have another account of another tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's his parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men That that was the Pharisees and that's I'm glad I'm not like this this tax collector and this these sinners. Well, once again, Jesus picks a fight. Look at me, at verse seventeen, Luke chapter two again. When Jesus heard it, he said he could have let it go. He could have just ignored it. He wanted to pick a fight. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, what's going on here? Jesus is basically saying, you self-righteous birds, where would you expect to find a doctor? What would you expect the doctor to be hanging around with? Sick people, people who are sick. Uh, I I don't I don't know this for a fact but typically when you get your doc, your your medical degree you actually begin practicing medicine typically unless God calls you to something else you you're with sick people you, you you're if you're an orthopedic surgeon you repair bones that's what you do and what is Jesus saying to them he 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 says he's not calling them righteous He's saying he didn't say that I have not come to call the righteous what is he saying? To me? I, have, I, I have not come to call those who, who consider themselves so self-righteous that they don't need me. I come to those who are, who are sick and know they're sick and need help. Turn back again to Luke, if you would. Luke 19. I, I'll refrain from singing the song. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, as most of them were. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a wee little man, small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, And was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Why did he must have to stay at his house? This was a redemptive priority. So he heard and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who's the they? The Pharisees, the scribes, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said, Zacchaeus just blew them off. And he stood up and he said, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which he had, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. See, the one person with whom Jesus can do nothing is a person who thinks himself so good he doesn't need anything. That was fight number two. Fight number three, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Fight number three. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Again, this is not a a question for information, but it's an accusation. You're not following the rules. Um, And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and, uh, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. No, I put new wine. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Uh, what in the world is going on here? How many times does the scripture command, did, did the Old Testament command them to fast. Israel to fast. Once a year. That's correct. On what day? Yom Kippur. They were, they were required to fast, according to the Scriptures, once, one time a year. Required to. By the time Jesus came along, they were fasting twice a week. On Mondays and Thursdays. Scripture never required that. That was not acquirement of the Word of God. That was not according to the Word of God. And they came and they said, basically, you know, why aren't your disciples following the traditions? In verse 19, Jesus provokes them. And he uses three illustrations. One is the, a wedding, the bridegroom and a wedding. You see, even the Pharisees said that during the during the time of a wedding, and you, you've you probably heard this before, weddings in that culture sometimes would last a week or sometimes a little longer, and, and there was continual feasting. It wasn't a marriage, and then they run off and go have a, a private honeymoon. They hung around for a week. I kind of like our way better. Um, but in any event... Um, and 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 the Pharisees would the Pharisees themselves would well, they would lay aside these these fasting rules for weddings and you know they they said you know it's understandable. So he's telling them through their own standards. He's saying you know, bride, you, you don't we don't mourn. You don't mourn during weddings. But number two is he talks about cloth. You don't take an old pair of jeans that have holes in them. And put a brand new fresh piece of cloth on it, and t- you know, and, and, and attach it. Because what, ha- what will happen, he says. When you start washing those pair of pants, the new cloth will what? Will shrink and will pull and tear the old jeans and make a bigger hole. You, you, don't, you don't put a new patch on an old pair of jeans. And then what's the third parable that he talks about? A third illustration. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. The wineskins, they would carry wine and wineskins in the, the heat of the Palestinian heat uh, when, when the wine would ferment and the wine would expand. It, the, it, would, it would expand the bag. And, and eventually a wineskin would, would have expanded as much as it's going to go. So if you put new wine in an old wineskin, it has no elasticity. It can't stretch anymore. It's at its breaking point. And when that wine ferments and when that wine expands, it will burst the wineskin. What in the world is Jesus talking about? This bridegroom. Old garments. This, you know, wineskins. See, their view of God and and, and their, their religion at this point, Judaism at this point, had become a rigid, inflexible, legalistic faith that had no room for joy, no room for spontaneity, no room for freedom. And in fact, Jesus is saying, I have not come to put a patch on an old pair of jeans. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. I have not come to put new wine into old wineskins because they cannot contain it. And in fact, the the author to Hebrews in 8.13 says that 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 old system was obsolete and was passing away. That that the old the old Mosaic covenant was so rigid and so brittle. And in fact, the traditions that they had added onto the Mosaic covenant were so rigid and so brittle. They could not coexist. Judaism as a religion cannot coexist with the gospel. When We see the destruction of the temple there. Can you have Judaism without a temple? Not really because Judaism requires what? Sacrifice. Do they even need a temple anymore? The te- a physical temple is obsolete. Why do we know that? Because Jesus says, "What? I'm the fulfillment. I am the temple." And in fact, he goes on to say, "We're the temple." What about the sacrifices? Would will there be any? Will there be a need for any sacrifices any time in the future? Why? Those were pictures. Those were types of Jesus. He's saying, listen, guys, I haven't come to try to to patch this thing up. I'm bringing something completely new. The newness of the kingdom. Remember he talks about that the kingdom of God is near and is among you. Undoubtedly, this would have provoked them. Fight number four. Verse 23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I love their questions. And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? He also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now it doesn't sound like picking a fight to me at first glance, but he is. He's picking a fight because he is reinterpreting the scriptures for them. By the way, this action was permissible. Deuteronomy 23, 25, we won't read it, but, but going along and they could pick grains from a field this was permissible for someone who was hungry but why what what got their hackles up they were doing it on the sabbath now what's what's wrong with that well anybody know what one of the ten commandments is talks about the sabbath keep it holy now the question was what does that mean for the average jew they would say well what what does it mean to keep it holy By Jesus' day, the the scribes and the Pharisees had erected over 600 what they called fence laws. And and, and in in deference to them, when the Pharisees first got started, it's unclear when they first got started, but their their, their intent was probably, we want to make sure that we keep the Sabbath holy. And and, and the Sabbath, we know the Old Testament said, you can't do work on the Sabbath. So the question is, well, holy and I can't do work, what does that mean? Do you know that by the... That by the time Jesus in Jesus' day, you couldn't wear sandals. You couldn't walk on the Sabbath because the sandals had tacks in the bottom of them, and as you walked, that, they considered that as carrying a load. That was how oppressive. That was how oppressive the Bible they thought the Bible and God had that God himself had become to them. And so, why did they say what well, He's doing? What's not lawful? This, they said, was harvesting. They were going along picking the grains, and they said, well, you're not supposed to harvest on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. All they were concerned about were works violations. How do you violate the Sabbath? Now, Jesus gives them an example of David, and David went into the the temple. Um, Was it the temple? What was it? What was it at that time? The tent of meeting, probably. And he took the bread, and Jesus even said that it was not lawful for them. So what's what is Jesus doing? Some say that Jesus is- is saying, hey, I'm Jesus, and I can- I can tell you when you have to obey it and when you can't, in essence. Some hold that view. In other words, Jesus is saying, because of my authority, uh, the, the Lord, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, I can say when it's okay to break the Sabbath. I don't think that's it. I think that built in to the law were these exceptions. In other words, I think that this action was, Jesus is saying, um, this is permissible. In other words, this kind of act was written, was within the intent of the law all along. The law really didn't prohibit what these men were doing just as the law really didn't prohibit David from eating the bread. They failed to recognize that meeting human needs was not considered a work violation of the law. So Jesus was reinterpreting the law for them. He's saying, yes, you cannot work on the Sabbath, but meeting needs of someone who's in need does not constitute a violation of that work prohibition. He is correcting their interpretation of the Old Testament. And that's what he's saying, you guys are absolutely dead wrong. So Christ was not, he wasn't, he wasn't exerting an, accept, an exception to violate the law. He wasn't, he would never say it's okay to ever violate the law. But he declared that, that this was a misapplication of that law. went over good with those who prided themselves on being experts in the law. Fight number five is the last one, Mark chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful? Mark has grouped these together. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What did they say? Nothing. They were speechless. Because he put him in a bind again. He picked a fight with them. And they backed down. And he looked around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How they might destroy him. Jesus once again was saying, this is not. A work violation. In fact, what was the bind he put him in? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? <laughs> if they said it's lawful to do harm, what would all the people say? You're not, you're not true prophets. You're not true religious. You mean you mean to say it's okay to harm somebody? But if they said it's okay to do good, then Jesus said, say, well, then why are you protesting what I'm doing? So what did they do instead? Their only recourse was to be silent. And and look at I love this I get my if you were up here, you'd see goosebumps, Ricky, right now. You I know that's not a pleasant thought for you, but you'd see. What does he say? Look at look at this. He looked around at them with anger. This is no meek, mild, wimpy, milk toast, Mahatma Gandhi. He he stares them in the face in anger, anger at their. Obstinance, anger at, at the, the the oppressive spirit that they have been laying on people. This is Jesus in his full humanity. God in his full humanity. God experiences the full range of emotions. We are made in his image. Only he, his anger is never expressed in a sinful way. He puts him in a bind with his question. Now he puts him in a bind with his action. Why did this put him in a bind with action? What does he do? He says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was made whole. Jesus didn't lift a finger. There's no way they could accuse him of having worked on the Sabbath. Could have waited. Could have done it secretly. But he did it right there because he's picking a fight. Verse 6 is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. They go out and they held council with the Herodians. We don't know who the Herodians are. They are not mentioned any, anywhere, at least not to date, not mentioned anywhere outside the Bible in any, any other ancient uh, literature. But as this was a kind of a Latinism, that, that this is probably those who, who were pro-Herod and who followed Herod. The Pharisees hated Herod. He wasn't Jewish. He was Gentile. He was evil. He was gross. And now they're doing what? You know the old adage the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now you may say, man, this is chapter 3, and they're all we're already. Well you need to remember Mark is very brief. This account, you'll find this account in Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 6. So a lot of ministry has gone on that Mark hasn't recorded. This is a turning point. And as a turning point, he picked so many fights with them, they finally said, Okay, we've got to get rid of this guy. So they go to Guido and Luigi and, and uh they say, Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna have to we're gonna put a contract out on this guy. That's what I'm saying. Jesus did not walk around the countryside trying to lay low and stay out of the crosshairs. He went out of his way to pick fights. The question is, why? Why did Jesus pick fights? It was purposeful, and I think it was for two reasons. Number one, to confront and to expose. He came to expose the false religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. He came to, 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 to change how they exposed how they viewed others and how they viewed God. He went out of his way to confront them with how they viewed God. But number two was to reveal, it was to reveal the true nature of the Father. For Jesus was, in fact, the embodiment, the very embodiment of the Father. Jesus said that if if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to reveal the true nature of the Father and the true nature of his new kingdom. The old mosaic container was not fit, was not designed to hold or to coexist with the inauguration of the kingdom of God. But it wasn't, I think, just for them alone, but for us too to maybe reveal to us, how do you view God? Is God a severe, harsh, demanding disciplinarian who says you can't pick grain on the Sabbath? Who says you can't heal a man on the Sabbath? Who says you have to fast twice a week? How do you view God? Is God a loving, gracious heavenly father or is he as a stern disciplinarian taskmaster like the Pharisees got he challenged them to expose how they viewed themselves how did they view themselves God's lucky to have me on the team they were self-righteous they held others in contempt and they looked down on others That old saying, "But for the grace of God, go I." He came to reveal to them and to us how we viewed others. Do we view them with compassion, with grace, or with malice and contempt? For in fact, in that account of Zacchaeus, Luke nineteen ten, Jesus said, "I have come to seek and to save the lost." Jesus picked fights all the time, but he didn't do it to be petty. He didn't do it in a way that was sinful or wrong. He did it to confront and to expose, and he did it to reveal. And as a result, what was their response? Seeing all this healing and confounding them time and time again, they conspired to kill him, to have him killed. to put a contract out on his life. And in fact, we'll see that through the rest of the gospel. How do you view God? How do you view yourself? How do you view others? Are you more like the Pharisees? Or are we more like Jesus? Let's pray. Father, um, I, am, I am once again uh, renewed with um, the authority, that Jesus had he he always was in charge he was never uh, he was never a victim he took command of every situation he took charge of every situation Lord I guess in our in our phrases he took the fight to them so for, for those who are legalistic and self-righteous he took the fight to them but for those who recognized and acknowledged them as sinners he responded with love and compassion and grace. Father, give us that balance. Help us take the fight to those who oppose you. Help us to be those who know your word and who wield your word in a way that exposes and confronts sin and opposition. But Lord, help us also to reveal, to reveal you, a heavenly, gracious, loving Father, one who says, simply call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And Father, we pray in his name this morning. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you please stand as we sing?